3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello and welcome to Wednesday, the 25th of November, uh, Wednesday breakfast with your hosts, myself, Idwin and Rob. Hello. Hello. We're, we are back. This is, uh, we've, we had a little mini break and we're back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> back in action. Back in action. Um, Rob, I suppose, catching up on these past two weeks, what have you been up to? I have been really just learning how to one of a, to, for one of a better expression, how to Melbourne again. Like I, I caught the tram the other day and I, I literally forgot how to catch a tram. I'm like, Oh, I've got to tap on and Oh, I've got to press the button when I want to get off the tram. And Oh, I've got to, Oh, I don't have to tap off. And I, I just, everything was a double day. Something that's so used to being a muscle memory. Mm, I had a similar experience, which is like, this is sad for, you know, public transport enthusiasts that we are. Um, I had a similar thing with like, deeply concerned with trains and my Mikey and is the train going to stop at the station? It's like, of course it's going to stop at the station. (laughs) Did you notice the PTV's updated its app? I hadn't. I hadn't actually noticed that. All right, for all those people out there who, is, who maybe haven't been watching this as closely as I have, uh, <laughs> it was a delight about a month ago to switch on PTV, and they've, they've redone the app all glorious, you know, high definition, tracking all, you know, transport times, very, very swank. That's very, it's a very nice way to relive in Melbourne with, like, an updated PTV app, just, like, the small joys that make, like, your day your day. Ah, oh, yes. We emerge out of lockdown and we have uh, apps that work. <gasps> Who would have thought? <laughs> Actually, I, quickly getting on this idea of, like, how to Melbourne again, I wanted to get your mm. thoughts on the advertising campaign that came out recently. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's like, how hell will you, Melbourne? And it's got a division between the north of northern Melbourne and southern Melbourne. So it's like, Ooh. it's okay, so it's the ad campaign. Picture this. It's like a whole lot of iconic Melbourne scenes. So you've got hipsters trimming beards but you've also got like people drinking coffee people in the gardens picnics have been a big thing um but yeah like all these like little melbourne shots people coming out of like you know fourth grade that sort of stuff mm. and the whole slogan is how are you gonna melbourne and then you have like a poll and you can either go like northerny melbourne or southerny melbourne <laughs> <laughs> well um, i feel i feel conflicted because i I've been to the south side and my work's in the south side, but I live on the north side. So I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm, a, cent- I'm a central, I live across both, live and work across both. Mm. See, I'm a, I'm a definite, I'm in the southeast suburbs. So I'm on the southern side of it. And I just, I wonder how much the ad campaign is playing on that division of like north versus south Melbourne. I didn't even think we had a division, but um, I think this south adds, Oregon. yeah, I think this ad's going to create like a real rife. That's, <laughs> that was something odd I saw uh, in this kind of, you know, stepping out of lockdown is this ad campaign that's trying to get, I don't know, some more community action. Prodding the coals to get some more fire, by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's been kind of, I suppose, these last two weeks. 
that have kind of been uh, merging out of lockdown. As people will know, we have got eased restrictions, the most recent of which was actually announced this Sunday. Uh, so I'll, I'll quickly run over them just for anyone who's not in the loop. So we can now have up to 15 visitors in the home. Uh, you are still advised to wear face masks in when you're in another person's household. Uh, so that is a, still a thing. There's also up to 50 people can gather outdoors. So if you want to have a mass picnic, you can. Though 50 people at a picnic does sound horrific. Um, gyms I'd and indoor. People, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of surrounded and surrounded um gyms and indoor recreations are increasing to 115 people sorry 150 people group size is capped at 20 with uh one person per four meter squared hospitality increases to 150 people inside for larger venues and smaller venues can seat up to 50 patrons so get out there go have some meals out you deserve it there are so many good ramen bars to be to go and visit. Uh, you can also have, and this is delightful, up to 150 people attending weddings and funerals. Uh, masks do remain mandatory inside and on public transport, but outside, you where you can physically distance, where, where you can physically distance, you're allowed to not wear it, which is a joy. So walks again, you can by and large not have to wear a mask. Um, have you seen the Bunnings example that Daniel Andrews has used to drive this message home, Rob? I saw it. I actually found it a bit confusing, I have to say, when I saw it. <laughs> um, so I think um, for me, it's a bit of a case of the uh, the social media reference was a bit over overstepped and relative to what it was trying to say. That was, that's my opinion. But... That was your opinion. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's um, you don't have to wear a mask if you're in the Bunnings car park. Uh, you do have to wear a, you have to wear a mask inside Bunnings, I think. Yep. But uh, no, 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 no. And you would need to wear a mask if you were in the line for a budding sausage because you wouldn't be able to socially distance necessarily. So that's the idea. Car park, able to socially distance, no mask. Inside, mask. The queue, that weird grey area, mask because you're not able to socially distance. So... <laughs> That's really been the last two weeks. We've like we've gone to bunning sausage memes and how do you Melbourne? <laughs> We're getting quite a few cultural flashpoints. Anyway, jumping over to the show, uh, this week we're going to have uh, – it's, it's not really like – the last two weeks we've kind of done more themed shows or more listening back to conversations. This one's going to be one of those everything in the pot sort of weeks. <laughs> So on my end of stuff, we're going to have um, a story about robo-debt, and we're going to be talking to the senior policy advisor, Charmaine Crow from the Australian Council of Social Services. We've had these gr- this group on before, ACOS. Um, now, they're more of an advocacy group, and they work around community and social issues, and they're going to be talking about the recent class action um, held against the government for robo-debt, which was uh, run by Gordon Legal Services. And the case has been quite huge in the outcome. Uh, We're talking 400,000 people will receive compensation as well as repayment of funds, and the Commonwealth has also agreed to drop almost $400 million in invalid debts. So it's a big step forward for, I suppose, the expose and starting to recompensate for the tragedy that was robo-debt, or travesty, I should say. And, um, yeah, we're going to be talking to her about what needs to happen next. So that's on my end. 
And then after that, we have a bit of a crossover with Monday Brecky. So Judith Pepper will be giving a story regarding the revolving door story, as she, as she calls it, which is all about the interrelation between governments, transnational corporations, and the selling of assets as well. So that's another one to look out for for today. Absolutely. But for now, we will chuck over to alternative news and then be back with some tunes and in our interviews. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty gritty now. One, two, nitty gritty now, yeah. Boom, nitty gritty. alternative news this week we've got two uh, stories from Australia so the first one is a new research paper which doesn't hold out very strong hopes for uh, extinction rates both in Australia and globally so it's been shown it's been shown or the connection between man-made changes in fire activity and the threatening of 4,400 species across the globe with extinction this includes 90% species of birds, of bird species, 16% of mammal species, 17% of dragonfly species, and 19% of legumes. And they were classified as critically endangered, endangered, or vulnerable. Now, the report looks into fires that have occurred in non-traditional areas, often tropical, such as Queensland, Southeast Asia, South America, uh, and in the tundra of the Arctic Circle. And they're looking at like these sort of more recent fires that we've seen over the last year and a bit. Um, as well as looking at sort of traditional fire spots where, sorry, looking at places where fire seasons have become longer, like what we saw in Australia at the start of this year, as well as more extreme, like we saw in Australia and also in the US recently. The report also, and I thought this was quite interesting, looks at where more traditional fire spots, such as in Brazil, Tunisia and the United States, fires are actually reducing 
in like causation and likelihood. And what the paper does is it ties this fire activity and the changes in fire activity to the threatening of uh, habitats and thus of wildlife. So in response, the paper calls for the usual suspects of solutions, such as protecting and conserving green belts and fire breaks, as well as increasing controlled burn-offs. Um, looking into the paper a little bit more, it doesn't quite go into the detail that we've looked in Australia, like, for example, the um, need for, you know, more controlled burn-offs, but the inability to do so because of rising average temperatures. But the paper does look into some solutions which I think haven't been projected as much on the global stage. So first and foremost, they call for Indigenous fire stewardship and continuing and reinstating cultural burning in a modern context, a boost in biodiversity, ecosystems and human well-being. Uh, they also call, f- call for the reintroduction of grazing and digging animals that regulate fire regimes by reducing fuel loads for the benefit of the whole ecosystem and the deployment of rapid response teams to enact targeted fire suppression and emergency conservation management. So I I suppose these sort of solutions aren't necessarily new to 3CR, but I would make the note that the article came came out in the conversation, and it's actually been written by people from quite large wildlife and environmental organisations in Australia. So I think it's, you know, it's nice to see some of these sort of uh, grassroots or community solutions really starting to get, more of a trackways. Switching over to police updates, uh, the police have made headlines again, uh, this time for refusing to release information over a secretive data tool that they're using to track youth offenders. Whoa, this is a very scary story. <laughs> okay, so it was written up by The Guardian, actually released uh, on the 23rd, so this Monday. Uh, and what it shows is that the Victorian police have been using this tool within their data systems to regulate and monitor and even predict the likelihood of youth criminals to reoffend or even offend, right? To be classified under this tool, a youth offender has to be committed committed a certain level of crimes that corresponds with their age bracket. So, for example, a 10-year-old to 14-year-old has to be charged with at least 20 offences to make the to, to kind of be classified or included in this data tool. It is active at the moment in the division, which includes Dandenong, uh, with the suburbs of Springvale, Nariwaran, and Pakenham. And it's really worth noting, and what the article brings up in spades, is the fact that this is one of the most disadvantages, disadvantaged and diverse areas in not only Victoria, but Australia. Um, we know there are huge cultural, social, economic barriers and issues and the complex nuanced stuff going on in there. And the police have been using it to track a significant number of youth offenders within this, within these suburbs. So one police officer, senior police officer said within the article, we can, we can run that tool now and it will tell us, like, for example, if the kid's 15, it tells us how many crimes he's going to commit before he's 21. And based on that, it has about a 95% accuracy. Now they assure us that it's been tested, that this algorithm is, you know, correct and substantial. However, However, it has been drawn into heavy criticism, one, for the lack of transparency, accountability, two, because there is a huge tendency within this um, to discriminate, targeting marginalised communities. So we already know that the, that the police force has systemic and internalised racism within its force and its, and, and its delivery of you know, so-called justice. 
And also from previous, combining that with previous trans thoughts, we've also talked about how algorithms can actually help perpetuate this racism. So there's some really significant concerns around this. Uh, first off, the fact that the police are refusing to comment on the broader use of this data, how many young people are tracked on the program, what oversights are currently in place, whether it's still in use, and whether it's also been expanded out to other suburbs. Um, but I suppose this story also comes within the context of, you know, the Queensland going to election with the threat, threatening of a youth curfew. And it's this, I, I think it's an increasing narrative around youth crime that Australia is starting to see. Um, yeah, it, it's deeply concerning. And what seems to be happening in Victoria is it seems to be the sneakier, quieter um, data monitoring so that's rather stressful. And it's also stressful when you look at the fact that youth crime has ultimately dropped by about 30% since 2010 and continues to drop. 2020 has seen a small peak in youth crime, but we still remain, like for the large part, under a national, under the national average. Uh, to find out more about that and I think kind of dispel some of this, you know, rhetoric we hear about youth crime and a lot of racist rhetoric we hear around youth crime, it's really worth checking out the uh, Youth Affairs Council of Victoria, who have done a recent infographic, which I'll attach to today's rundown, breaking down just some of the misconceptions around youth crime that are used to drum up support for these sorts of data surveillance um, and, you know, punitive responses to youth offenders. So, yeah, a bit of a disappointing one there, Victoria, but um, one definitely to keep an ear for.
And that was Lido Pianamenta with her song Nada, one of my personal favourites. Next up, we have a bit of a treat. So this is Cam and Andy from the Yeah Na Pasaran show, uh, which goes to air every Thursday at 4.30. And they caught up with Shalani Kintaya, the director of Coded Bias, now currently filming at the MIF Film Festival. Now, if you've heard about The Social Dilemma on Netflix, honestly... Coded Bias sounds like it's cooler, heavier-hitting cousin. So I'll pass it over to Cam and Andy now to kind of give us more details and, yeah, have a chat with Shalani. You're listening to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today by Shalani Kintaya, the director of a film showing at MIF called Coded Bias, about algorithms, machine learning, and AI. Thanks for joining us, Shalini. Thanks so much for having me. I guess just to start off with, most people would be somewhat aware of the, you know, maybe the superficial role that algorithms play in their lives. Like if you Google a mattress and suddenly the algorithm decides that you want to see mattress ads for the rest of your life. But, you know, if you go on YouTube and watch a video about woodworking and the YouTube algorithm decides you want to become a neo-Nazi. Before you started making this film, what was your understanding of algorithms and what inspired you to make it? I had no understanding of algorithms. <laughs> I feel like many of us, I was just sort of walking, sleepwalking through these technologies that are making decisions and predictions about our behavior all of the time. And quite by accident, I came across the work of Joy Bodomwini and the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, Kathy O'Neill. And that sort of set me on this down the rabbit hole of uncovering the dark side of big technology. Shelley once claimed that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. In the 21st century, has poetry been displaced by algorithms? Well, I can't say that, but I, I can say that human discernment has been placed by algorithms much to our dismay. And what I was most terrifying in the making of this film is that algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. And we saw that in the film. And what's so terrifying about the way AI is being deployed as sort of these invisible gatekeepers that are sort of changing the fate of human beings is that they have this capacity to disseminate bias at scale and that has the capacity to really hurt people and hopefully in coded bias what I hope to do is not just explain some of the science and sort of pull back the curtain on the on these sort of big data-driven technologies and help us all understand this so that we can be educated, but also show that we have real power to shape and to govern how these technologies are used in the 21st century. And it's my hope that um, we do more to show that these technologies are in, ke in keeping with our democratic ideals, with democracy and with civil rights. In Australia, we've just had a, something of an algorithmic political scandal where the government employed an algorithm to detect welfare cheats and uh, it went somewhat awry and identified a lot of people who had never 
taken anything more than they were entitled to that uh, led to a lot of misery and some even some deaths. What are some of the really real-world ways that these machine learning algorithms have affected people uh, in the United States and elsewhere? I think one of the startling moments in my film that I don't think I ever recovered from watching however times we edited this scene was a 14-year-old boy, black and British, in London, in school uniform, a child, who got stopped by five plainclothes police officers, and we catch it on, on tape. They're stopped because of facial recognition, the test of facial recognition. And Big Brother Watch in UK did a study, and it, 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 this was upwards of 85% misidentifications, upwards of 2,000 wrongful stops. And this just has such an impact on people's lives. There was a man here in the U.S., that was stopped, arrested in front of his friends and neighbors, held for 30 hours, and never asked for his license because facial recognition had had misidentified him. One of the Sri Lankan bombers was misidentified. A, A woman in Boston was studying for her exams, right? She's not even in Sri Lanka, and she gets pulled out of a class and identified as a bomber from Sri Lanka, wrongly identified because of facial recognition. And so what is so frightening about these technologies is that they have racial bias, they have gender bias, and yet they're deployed (laughs) in excess on communities of color who have the capacity to be most hurt by them. And so, I mean, I think facial recognition is the technology that's easiest for all of us to understand but I think, you know, these, these algorithms, they're working in, in all kinds of ways that are invisible to us and that are opaque, and it makes the discrimination harder to fight. Shalini, those are examples of the use of this technology which uh, misidentifies those it's meant to target. But there's also issues with, I guess, when these algorithms and this facial recognition technology actually functions well and properly. So... What are the what are the set of concerns in that domain where this technology is actually working? You know, let's say more efficiently. Well, then we have perfect invasive surveillance. <laughs> we have um, the kind of stuff that the the Stasi in East Germany would make them look like a, they had a light touch and they were really cute because this kind of invasive surveillance is incredible. You can a, a, a police officer can take a picture of someone at a protest and put it into a database and pull up someone's social media profile. And you can see how the bias is one issue and then abuse is another issue. The the scenes of people being pulled up by the police uh, was like stop and frisk, essentially, that policy in action. But in this age when we're apparently trying to get away from that sort of thing, it seems like the police have just automated it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm a New Yorker, and we know the, the impact that stop and frisk, the disparate impact that it's had on black and Latino community here in New York. And so I feel that it's it can be terrifying. It can be a new form of racial profiling. And the scary part is, is that we're giving computers this absolute authority, sometimes with no human in the loop. And, and that can be because of the blind faith that we have, that computers always make the right decision. And so we really have to question 
um, as Kathy O'Neill says so well, our, our blind faith in big data. There was a, something else you raised in the film was the way that uh, like hiring algorithms, uh, especially now Amazon, for example, would automatically exclude any women who applied for a job in tech simply because they'd never hired women in those jobs before. So that's what it had learnt. And there was the, an example of a teacher who had won awards all through his career, but when they brought in the algorithm to judge his uh, performance, it found him lacking. It reminded me of people talking about being blacklisted as communists in the past and uh, how they couldn't get a job and they never knew why because they didn't know that they were on this blacklist. What are some of the emotional impacts that you saw from people who were affected by uh, algorithmic bias? You know, it's it's one of, I, I think the example you give is, is a powerful one because in the film I show that example, like you said, that, that the algorithm had sorted out all women unknowingly picking up on the inequalities of the past, right? They didn't mean to program it to be sexist, but... That's the past we came from, right? Who got hired, who got promoted, and the data showed that. And so when we were, when the algorithm was trained for success, it discriminated. And I think the scary part is if you're on the other side of that, it's very hard, as Ravi says in the film, to take the egg out of the pudding, you know, to say an algorithm has been involved in that process. And so sometimes we get this feeling, why why do I get keep getting discriminated in by jobs. And it could be that there's some algorithmic hit. You got, you're a false positive or a false negative, and it was wrong about you, and you have no way of, of knowing that or correcting it. And so um, we need some laws. We need some legislation. We need some oversight. We need some tools that will rein in the power of big tech. They have too much power. And that's what I realized in the making of this film. Like, I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. In terms of putting those protections in place, there's that old saying that you should never pick a fight with someone who buys ink by the barrel. I think updating that for the modern context would probably involve a very complicated metaphor about container ships or something. Is there a real appetite for governments to address these issues, given that these companies can sort of make or break political careers? I think the tide is turning But the tide is turning because people all over the U.S. and all over the world are fighting for racial justice and equality. It's the largest movement for equality that we've seen for 50 years. And I owe them, I owe, you know, especially young people in the streets, a debt of gratitude because it is this combination of sort of brave scientists like the genius black women in my film who use the power of their research to take on big tech and to do the kind of science that I personally can't do, but also to connect that science to why it matters and who it matters for. And to say, like, we need to understand the science and we have to fight for the people who could be hurt by it. And I think we have a real chance. I'm incredibly hopeful because I believe that we have a moonshot moment. We, the people, have the power to tell big tech that we want them to commit to democratic practices and principles and to our civil rights. 
we want to see our civil rights encoded in the technologies that they're deploying at mass scale. We do not want to live under the kind of invasive surveillance that we see in China as citizens of a democracy, nor should we. And we are at this pivotal moment where it is really up to, to you and, and me to do that work. Martin Luther King says, uh, said that, that, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice, but it's actually us that has to do the bending. And what we're seeing is a mass movement of people who are doing that. And I think that this is a moment where we have to push legislators to, to actually push big tech, to actually regulate this industry like they regulate every other sector of society, at least here in the U.S. where we have no laws, essentially. Speaking of China, there's a sort of bizarre black mirror-y moment in the film when you speak to a woman in China about their social credit system, of which she's uh, apparently a big fan. Could you explain what social credit is? Yes. Um, I feel like in the, in the film, there's sort of three different approaches to data. There's China that has unfettered access to data and, and to your information and this sort of authoritarian approach. And what they're doing is sort of using facial recognition in concert with a, a social credit score. Basically, it's kind of like what Kathy O'Neill des- describes as algorithmic obedience training where if you your behavior and your friend's behavior gets scored, and according to that, you can be denied certain benefits in society, like getting on a train or getting on a plane. And you can walk into a store and pay with things with your face. And while it seems like a dystopian reality, it's just exactly that, a mirror of where we're going to. And I think... We all need to look at ourselves and say, what, are, what part of our humanity are we giving up to this race of towards efficiency? And I think that the protests that are happening around the world are calling us to build a culture that is based on human rights. That is the inherent value of human beings, black life included, and with that are our inalienable rights. And if we believe that fundamentally, that this is what civilized society should be based on in the 21st century, is the inherent value of every human being and with our, our inalienable rights, then it's not always about efficiency. Sometimes we have to say, screw efficiency and screw Jeff Bezos making a trillion dollars because that should be illegal in our lifetimes. Like, no one needs to make that much money. We need to rein this in. And so... What I'm saying fundamentally is we're at this pivotal moment where we have to decide whether we want a civilization based on human rights and human dignity or whether we're going to race towards efficiency. And it looks like we're choosing the latter. And that was an excerpt, as I said before, from Yena Pasaran talking to Shalani Kintaya about her new movie, Coded Bias. And that was only a little excerpt. There's about five more minutes to the interview, which I very well recommend going and seeking out, which you can find at freecr.org.au. Otherwise, you could also listen to the show, Yena Pasaran, Thursdays from 4.30. We'll quickly jump into a song and then be back for our next interview. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science 
and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. The Melbourne Armenian community is raising humanitarian and development funds to help the community back home as they struggle with the devastating impacts of war and conflict. Please consider donating to the Hayastan All-Armenian Fund. For more details, go to www.himnadram.org forward slash en forward slash donate. Alternatively, you can make a donation by way of direct deposit into the Hayastan All-Armenian Fund account at the National Australia Bank, BSB number 083230, account number 946770823. The Hayastan All-Armenian Fund is a not-for-profit organisation delivering education, healthcare, infrastructure, rural development and housing projects in Armenia. The Armenian General Benevolent Union is a 3CR affiliate and supporter. RoboDebt, the automated debt recovery program introduced mid-2016 that accused thousands of individuals of debts that they didn't owe. The program was originally introduced in an attempt to ensure recipients of Centrelink benefits were not underreporting their income and as a result over-receiving welfare payments, but quickly became the poster boy of government controversy and incompetence. As with the machine at the heart or at the core of, you know, debt recovery, the program created significant trauma and hardship for individuals who received these debts. This year, RoboDebt has culminated in a class action led by Gordon Legal. It resulted in a $1.2 billion settlement today, and as a result of the settlement, around 400,000 people will receive compensation as well as repayment of funds. The government has also agreed to drop almost $400 million in invalid debts. This is a massive step forward. And today we have the Senior Policy Advisor, Charmaine Crow from the Australian Council of Social Services, to tell us more about this outcome of this case and what needs to be done next. So, good morning, Charmaine. Good morning. So, starting off, this case follows on from Legal Aid's progress last year in the Amato test case, which found that income averaging underlying robo-debts uh, kind of system was unlawful, and that was in November last year. Can you tell us about the, this case's findings and how it builds on that and its significance? Well, uh, that really was what led to the government um, abandoning uh, the robo debt program, um, it, which is, is somewhat of a shame that it took uh, two very courageous people to take their cases to the federal court for um, that decision to be made by government. Um, many stakeholders, individuals, organisations has have um, been 
very clearly telling the government that what they were doing was wrong since mm. 2016. Uh, there have been a whole host of very serious problems with robo-debt since it, it first took effect back in 2016, um, but it was not until the federal court found that it was actually unlawful uh, what mm. the government was doing that the government decided to suspend the program. So, I mean, that case, um, or those cases were obviously very significant in that respect um, and uh, essentially led to the, the class action. And I suppose um, robo-debt was described by grassroots group Not My Debt as a bureaucratic abomination. Can I get ACOS's organisational experience, I suppose, how you guys have interacted with this policy through aiding and helping your clients and that, that your advocacy, I suppose? Yeah, so, um, I mean, ACOS engages in systemic advocacy, so we don't do individual advocacy. So we don't have clients per se, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, Victoria Legal Aid and other uh, community legal centres um, are different in that respect. Um, but look, at, I mean, we, uh, we first expressed concerns about the program when it was announced as part of the budget process back in, um, you know, very late 2015, very early 2016. Uh, and then the government piloted the program in mid-2016, and at the end of that year, we started to hear from people who were affected. Um, the government also did a bit of media on it, and uh, straight away for us it, it rang alarm bells. Uh, pretty much um, since the end of 2016, we have been very strongly advocating against um, robo-debt because there were a litany with problems that were very obvious to us mm-hmm. uh, and we had very serious concerns about the program itself. I mean, it, for context, it um, before robo-debt, the government would probably send out about 20,000 letters a year about debt recovery uh, and this rounded up to 20,000 letters a week. Wow. Uh, and there were we could see that people were getting these debts or um, first hearing about them via a debt collector uh, with no contact from Centrelink otherwise, um, whereas beforehand it was the onus of proof was on Centrelink to go mm-hmm. and do the investigation, go and do the make sure the, the, the debt calculations were correct, uh, and RoboDebt removed all of that. Um, so... Uh, um, we met with the relevant minister uh, a number of times um, uh, and have repeatedly called on the government to um, abandon uh, the scheme because of the damage it was doing. Mm. Um, I mean, in our view, and we said this very early on, it was uh, really an egregious abuse of government power. Uh, there's no other way of putting it. Um, the power very much rested with the government mm-hmm. uh, and you know, you had literally hundreds of thousands of people with very limited avenues to contest what the government was doing. And touching on this uh, this specific case and its win, um, so as a result of the settlement, around 400 people, 400,000 people will receive compensation as well as almost um, a repayment of funds and the Commonwealth has also agreed to drop about $400 million of invalid debts. This is quite huge um i was wondering if you could just talk about you know this the the success of this case and what it kind of signifies for robo debt um people who have experienced robo debt yeah um boo 
we probably can't comment too much on the compensation component and mm-hmm. we weren't involved in the case at all. Um, uh, I mean, the, the fact that they're repaying monies already paid uh, by people who receive these fake debts, <laughs> um, I mean, that, that was announced earlier in the year um, and it was also made clear that um, further debts that uh, presumably had been um, uh, raised under robo-debt will no longer be valid uh, because there's no legal basis for them. <laughs> um, yep. I, so, I, I mean, the, the key thing for us now is that um, we need uh, an independent inquiry into mm. what has gone on, um, how something like RoboDebt uh, could come into being and also continue despite the, um, you know, the literally thousands of voices saying that this is not okay. Um, I mean, multiple cases of RoboDebt went to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal mm-hmm. uh, and, um, you know, the government repeatedly dropped those cases because they didn't want them to go any further. Uh, there were clear problems with the scheme and it's it's beyond belief that it continued for the four years or more that it did. Um, uh, and I think that's why we need a very uh, transparent mm-hmm. arm's length independent inquiry into what went on so that we never repeat uh, um, uh, what happened. Totally. And talking about this next step, I mean, you're calling for an independent inquiry. Is this a call for a Royal Commission like we've seen from Labor and the Greens or is this something different? What would this, um, what sort of process do you think would best be suited to kind of get to the bottom of this? I, I mean, we're not too fussed on the, the process that is used. If it's a Royal Commission, mm-hmm. fine. Um, uh, just as long as it's, you know, you have that transparency, you have that independence. Um, uh, it's really important for the public, I think, to have confidence in government uh, decision-making that we have this kind of inquiry. And the public needs to have confidence that the inquiry was, was run in an independent manner and, and really got, you know, down to what the key issues were. Um, you know, I think one of the, the worst things that robo well, not one of the worst things, but a, a horrible outcome of robo-debt was mm. um, that it, it destroyed people's confidence in uh, government administration, you know. Mm. Um, it destroyed people's confidence in one of the most essential parts of our, our um, uh, social safety net, which is Centrelink, uh, and that's a horrible thing, um, uh, you know. People need to be able to trust that their government uh, is not out there to harm them. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, you know, without a doubt, RoboDebt did extensive harm. It caused extensive trauma for many thousands of people. Um, and there needs to be some accountability, <laughs> which mm. is why an independent inquiry is so important. Absolutely. So it sounds like ACOS's kind of perspective on this issue is more looking at the system as a whole and saying, look, this cannot happen again. With What were the, I suppose, checks and balances in place that prevented that that, that led to robo-debt becoming a thing and then going on for as long as it did? Um, I wanted to get your comments on the welfare system as a whole and what you think robo-debt has highlighted about the cultures or the modus of operandi that our welfare system rests on and this idea around de- debt collection as well. Mm. Um, so I think a few things. I think the government felt like 
well, they obviously felt like they could get away with it. Mm. Um, uh, many of the people who were affected by robo-debt uh, were on low incomes already. They were already receiving income support. Uh, but there were also a huge number of people who weren't on income support, um, uh, you know, because of the nature of the scheme. It was seeking to recover alleged overpayments from up to seven years prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for many of those people, you know, were in the workforce and not not needing um, Centrelink payments anymore. Um, and I think, um, I, but I, th- I still think that the government thought that it could get away with it because these were people who had been receiving income support and traditionally that group of people have had somewhat limited power mm. <laughs> uh, with respect to, you know, public policy and, and, and what happens to them, essentially. Um, uh, I think the other component is that the government probably um, uh, underestimated the level of public backlash that would happen with something like this. So for years we've seen the government wheel out stories about, you know, supposed um, Centrelink fraud that, mm. you know, is, is very widespread, which all the data show is not the case. <laughs> um, very, like it's literally 0.00001% or something like that. Mm. <laughs> so cases of, of actual fraud. <laughs> um, and I think the government, though, thought that it could get away with this kind of thing by framing it as a crackdown on fraud. Um, it, it really came back to bite them. You had... So many people who had absolutely done the right thing, in fact, probably everyone who was affected by RoboJet, um, <laughs> uh, certainly the illegal <laughs> um, RoboJets that were, were um, uh, charged against people. Mm. Um, you know, you had countless stories of people saying, look, I've reported everything. I'm not sure what's happened here. Why have I got a debt worth tens of thousands of dollars? Yeah. Um, uh, and so it really highlighted the, um, uh, you know, how wrong the government got this program. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and I think more broadly, um, I mean, governments for many years have, you know, demonised people receiving income support as, you know, being lazy, et cetera. Um, I think the, the tables have turned somewhat, so that's okay. not so much the um, governments can't get away with that kind of framing so easily now. I think there's a greater understanding of what it's like to be on unemployment payments or income support payments. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's greater empathy out there. So, again, I think um, that helped to counter the government's narrative with this. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was a horrible program and that was really obvious from, from day one. And I think most reasonable people could see that. Thank you. I mean, that's that's pretty solid. Um, I wanted to finally touch on this next step, this calling for an inquiry and the political support behind it, because obviously Labour and Greens have thrown their fists in the, in the ring and said, you know, a royal commission. Uh, but the Morrison government has been very resistant to the issue with, you know, Scott Morrison distancing himself, then begrudgingly apologising and then saying that, you know, well, it's not necessary because we're fixing the problem. And that was the announcement of, you know, $721 million in repayments to individuals. For this next step, what do you think needs to happen? Who do you think we need to be uh, mobilising and talking to to, to, get it, to get it off the ground? Mm. 
Well, I think everyone who has been affected by robo debt um, uh, shouldn't let it go, you know, mm. um, uh, which is obviously hard. Like it's it's been many years that <laughs> people have, you know, at least been able to be repaid what they've uh, what they're owed. But mm. um, I think it's important that people, you know, um, uh, maintain pressure on government to have this inquiry up and running, to have mm. it established. Uh, and it's also incumbent on organisations like ACOS and, and others, uh, including the grassroots groups that were so powerful throughout this whole debacle, mm. um, um, to continue to place pressure on government so that we can hold government to account for what's happened. Well, thanks, so, Charmaine, so much for coming and talking about this, I suppose. Is there any final things you want to add about robo-debt, about welfare, or even ACOS's sort of next step in this, this issue? Look, ACOS is certainly going to um, continue to call for uh, an independent inquiry into RoboDebt. We're not going to, to let this go. For us, it's it's not over. Um, uh, we've also continued our call for um, to work with the government, along with other stakeholders, people affected, uh, to redesign a, a fair and humane system of debt recovery. I mean, you know, it's... ACOS is not opposed to the government um, uh, retrieving overpayments where they've been made, but that system must be fair and uh, it must have people at its centre. Mm. <laughs> um, we've also, we're also calling on the government to not uh, go back to people who have been affected by uh, robo-debt um, uh, to again seek money that has been allegedly overpaid. I, mm. I think people have been through enough. Um, so, yeah, for us, we're not letting this, this go. Uh, and we're obviously more broadly calling for um, uh, income support payments to be increased on a permanent basis so that everyone does have enough to cover the basics because that's, of course, <laughs> a, a core campaign for us that, um, you know, everyone has enough to lose. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and chatting to us about this case and what needs to happen next. No problem. Thank you so much. Closing off this, just as a uh, end to this interview, I also think it's important to mention that despite this being quite a significant um, case or turning point, not everyone is doing the victory dance. Not all group members were entitled to settlement payments. Some people would get back as little as $280, and it looks to be a slow, painful process from here on out. The Guardian has run a piece highlighting that many victims of robo-debt still feel unsatisfied with this result, and I will have a link to that um, in the rundown today. I will also link the advocacy slash volunteer group, Not My Debt, which have been central to this issue, and I think draws into this point Charmaine made just a few minutes ago, which is the fact that those with the who, who have experienced robo debt or someone in your extended network, we cannot let this issue go, and we need to be continuing to put pressure on this issue because the government seems very resistant to addressing it. So, whilst we might have seen another step forward, it's one of those issues to keep an eye on. Okay, we'll now flip to a song and and be back soon. Hunting. I've been a girl, I've been a boy Digging my feet into the ground Like an apple tree Wanting to live with a purpose Skin 
is a word. Love is not a sin. People are bad. People are good. Just like the moon is a stone, but it's a star when it's dark. And now she's hiding. If you've seen what a heart is, you've seen its color. If I ever knew how we could fight it, I would take care of its children. Become that.
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. So we're jumping into tram thoughts now. So this week we're speaking about murals. And before kicking off, Idwin, I wanted to start. Has there been a street mural that has really stuck in your memory or had a particular impact on you? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a couple, but I, in preparing for this question, I was trying to think about the difference between graffiti versus mural. Um, so on the more graffiti side, I'd have to say that Melbourne's um, series of the girl with the bucket that you see in different parts around the city, uh, whether she's throwing a rainbow out of her bucket or she's sitting down and all those sorts of stuff, they're like little sticker murals. I think that's one that sticks with me. But also um, Aretha Brown's uh, mural outside of Footscray Station. I believe it says Footscray, uh, people of sunshine, the sun shines for you or something like that. That one really sticks in my mind as a mural that, um, I keep going back to one sec. Here we go. For those who struggle, the sun shines for you. That's the mural. Hmm. For me, I would say one that is, it's, uh, from a more international example is in Venice because every, year or second year they run uh, something called the Biennale and it's kind of like a for one of a better word expression is with the arc the Olympics for, for architecture or the Olympics for art and yeah. so in 2018 there was a theme called free space which was a deliberately very vague term and different countries sort of create different exhibits based around that theme um, but the thing I actually found really interesting is that when you left the, the whole sort of venue place, there was a mural that was not part of this whole exhibit. It was separate to it. And it was equally vague and unspecific. And basically, it was an array of about 30 different nations' flags, predominantly wealthy countries and those that had participated in this uh, Biennale. And at the top was the question, free space, question mark. And the thing I th- that really struck me about it, and it kind of made me pause, was... It was very much obscuring the meaning of what this whole event had been about, just through a, a question mark. Um, and then it, the meaning was very vague, and I think that just led to a lot of interpretation. Was it talking about free space in terms of migration and refugees and having space for refugees to move into different countries? It's also about free space for whom? Like, who are we designing free space for? Um, and it kind of forced you to ponder a little bit. And that's one that's kind of always stuck in my mind. But this is what I find also quite fascinating about murals is they're very timely and impermanent and they're kind of very sort of like they float a little bit. And that what makes them so quite interesting is that they're so of the essence and so of the time. And this year in particular in 2020, there's been a very significant renaissance in murals across the world, particularly within the USA in light of the Black White Matters protests. And sort of a very well-known example would be the, the mural of George Floyd um, that's been photographed, you know, many, many times. And so perhaps also another factor why we're seeing a lot of murals this year is also because we've been so constrained to our same environments. Murals kind of give a new flavour when we're walking down our streets to somewhere that's so familiar, um, perhaps, you know, too familiar and it's creating a bit of diversity in the space that you know makes it feel a little bit new again but i wanted to ask Idwin, mm-hmm. when a mural's just been painted or created what do you feel when you, you're walking across the street and you see a new mural and you're like oh that that's a new mural what, do, what kind of runs through you i think there is a sense of delight in discovery it's kind of um, that burst of colour that 
<laughs> that reason to look up if you've seen that terrible ad campaign for billboards. It's one of those like it's not commercial. It's not um it's not trying to do anything other than just produce art and capture you and make you feel something. And usually that something is joy or insight or, you know, it's, it's that sort of um, deeper connection, I think. So whenever I see a mural, yeah, it's, it's delight. Cause it's like, Ooh, that's, that's exciting. And then, you know, there's a week's process of taking every single person, you know, to go see that mural. Mm. <laughs> but I think that would like, be the moment. Yeah. It's for me, it's when I, I see a mural it's kind of like, I don't know, this, this is sort of energy in the space. And it's kind of, I think, because when you create a mural, the, the place that you're standing as the viewer is the place of creation. It's not mm-hmm. like someone in an art studio where they've got a canvas and then painting or the sculpture or whatever it is, then move somewhere else. When you're at a mural, you're at the artist studio. And to me, there's kind of a sort of, sort of a resembling, a sort of remaining energy in the space when someone's being creative in that area. And so it's got this really kind of enticing presence. Um, and the idea that someone, you know, has put in effort out of pure passion and love for this art and then just kind of left. And there's this kind of just this vibe lingering. Can I jump in there with um one of these, the, something that gives me that sort of thought is uh, outside Footscray, there's also a wall which has, um, a disability awareness celebration mural. And it's just these stickers that someone stuck up um, of pictures of people doing, you know, all sorts of different activities. There's cartwheels, there's all that sort of stuff. And there's all this beautiful diversity and action going on. And it very much feels like that. It feels like they've created those shapes and those, you know, because um, they have, sorry, the words disability written out with people. And it feels just so um printed on the landscape it's it's that surrounds it like it it feels so tailor fit to that moment and to that to that you know that movement I suppose so I I think that's one of those moments where it's like you're right you're standing in the studio where someone's gone you know this this is where it's gonna where it, it sits yeah yeah and the other thing as well that I think gives a lot of energy to the size of a mural is um it like partly because it's it's so timely and so political because it doesn't go through the normal public art curation processes where, say, when there's a piece of public art, you have to go through all the different councils and not to say that that's necessarily always a bad thing, but there is something kind of magical when something has that spontaneity to it. It's sort of the lack of commissioning, the, the very public nature of it. It's very readily made. And often a lot of them become images of a movement, of, of a moment of time, um, which is obviously increasingly important in the, in the, in the image-saturated world that we kind of live within. Mm. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, Edwin, what do you see as like the purpose of a mural? You know, What does it really bring to a city? Yeah, so, I mean, this kind of builds up a conversation I had back in 2019 with Tanya Bruguera, who is a famous um, public artist. Uh, she's been, she was recently in the Tate Modern. She was recently in Australia. She's, she's been all over the place and she works in a lot of public spaces. And for her, with murals, with any form of public art, she was like, it is about forcing connection and community. It is about um, co-opting a space for the public 
to connect the public with one another. And it's that, that idea of having something that is so present within your daily, you know, commute or walk or anything like that, that you are forced to stop and interact with it. And it's that, it's, she, she actually said it's forced engagement. Um, but she said it's also substantive and like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a type of engagement that we don't have enough of and that we're all kind of really hankering after in some ways. So, Linking that back to like a wider purpose of that sort of stuff, I think it ultimately comes down to community. It really is community. It's celebration, it's um, creation, and it's it's that sort of sense of building a larger sense of self and that sort of you know idea of feeding back. Uh, to support that, I'd, I'd refer to the like you know the I Am Australian series. That's kind of it's a it's a mural all around Melbourne, and it's got pictures of people who are from I suppose non-stereotypical Australian, like they'd be seen as not the stereotypical Australian, which would be, you know, white. Um, so you've got people of Asian or Middle Eastern or African descent and they're on a poster and it says, you know, I am Australian. And it's got them in sort of ye olde sort of costuming and stuff like that. But it's driving home that we are living, we live in a multicultural society and it's a beautiful multicultural society where people, you know, people have these complex identities and things like that. So, that was a mural for me that really did reinforce that community sentiment and that sort of, it, it carried so much power, you know, it had the values in it, it had the realism in it, it had the beauty in it. And it was that sort of, when I saw it, I went, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of my community making that, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah. So that might be like a very roundabout way of saying it, but I think it's that, it's that engagement, that forcing of connection and that, Actually getting to live the values that you hold, if that makes sense. And the thing that's interesting about murals is in some ways they're in direct competition to a very similar mm-hmm. form of murals, which is like advertising, like billboards. And they are creating a value or they're sort of espousing their own value set, hoping that people kind of adopt it. Um, but this is very much about a community value set. It, it's, it's all like, it's always in direct kind of opposition to a lot of what advertising does. Um, and so it's, it's almost like rectifying those balances. Um, that it, it's cities aren't just purely spaces to consume things, they're, they're spaces to live within and there are different experiences within that. And so it kind of encapsulates that. Mm. Um, to kind of finish off, there's a quote I wanted to, to say, and it came from um, City Lab, which is a, it's a online publication. I had recently a bit of a discussion about murals, and I think it kind of captures a lot of what we've been discussing. And it says that public space is so important because it's contested and it's commodified. The traditional ways people see visual images is through billboards and spaces that cost money. When artists put up murals, they create an essential space for people to take in not just the views of powerful corporations but the voices of artists and ordinary people but yeah that's all my tram thoughts today um hopefully maybe next time you see a mural you start to think about it differently and you know think about who was there before who created it who are they and the kind of little nuggets that they're leaving in the city behind them the Jabberung heritage protection embassy is asking for support on monday 26th of October, a sacred directions tree was cut down on Jabarung women's country. Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide, and more sacred trees remain under threat as works continue. Here's what you can do. 1. 
Come to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. Visit the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. 2. Ring Daniel Andrews on 9651-5000 and let him know what you think. 3. Educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. 4. Donate to the Embassy on their GoFundMe page. 3CR supports the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. Tune into the 2020 Beyond the Bars CD launch on air Thursday the 12th of November. Despite the lifting of some COVID restrictions, we'll be launching this year's CD on air and online. This broadcast event will feature highlights from the July broadcast and officially launch the 2020 CD. Order your free copy of the CD now from 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars 2020. Been locked up for the last five years and I always run in the family now. There's that, that many, that much of my family is not funny. This is the point not only in here, and in Dame Phyllis too, you know what I mean? So, and there's a lot of women, Aboriginal women locked up to it at the moment. It's not a decrease in, in the last few years, it's just more or less increasing. Just doesn't make sense sometimes, you know? Tune in on Thursday the 12th of November at 2pm for the launch. Next up, we have the first half of Judith Peppard's uh, beautiful, beautiful discussion around the revolving door and looking that, looking at that through a series of interviews that she conducted over the last two years. Uh, we're gonna, we've actually run out of time today for the show to play the whole thing, so I'll play part two next week. But here's the first part with Judith's soothing tones to take us out for the show today. It's also worth noting that we had uh, the beautiful Aurora and her song Apple Tree. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. And right now, many of us have thinking time. As we stay at home to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, the pandemic that has overtaken the airwaves, but what were we thinking about before all this happened? Like, what stories grabbed our attention before COVID-19? I'm Judith Peppard from 3CR Monday Brecky, and I'm looking at one of the themes that emerged from our broadcasts in 2019, the concept of the revolving door, a term used to describe the links between government and multinational companies. In particular, the way government ministers, upon leaving office, are given positions with those companies, possibly as a reward for their services when they were in government, and also for making their knowledge and contacts available to companies for the future. Today we'll hear excerpts from three interviews broadcast in 2019 that highlight these concerns. In the second half of the show, Peter Miller, director of Deakin University's Centre for Drug, Alcohol and Addiction Research, looks at why politicians turning lobbyists, can be bad for Australia's health. Senator Rex Patrick from the Centre Alliance Party shares his concerns that former Minister of Defence Christopher Pine, in taking up a position with EY, 
breached ministerial standards. First up, I'm looking at the leasing of parts of the Port of Darwin to Chinese-owned company Landbridge in November 2015 and the role of Andrew Rubb, who at that time held the portfolio of Minister for Trade and Investment in the federal Liberal government. But first, some background. The Northern Territory government had requested additional capital funding for current and future infrastructure needs for the Port of Darwin from the federal government for many years. Those requests were rejected, and the Territory was advised to seek funding from the private sector. In January 2015, the Northern Territory set up a Port of Darwin Select Committee. One of the recommendations of that committee was that the Northern Territory government consult with the Foreign Investment Review Board and the Department of Defense in relation to the strategic and security risks that a potential international investor might present. Well, that was done, and the Landbridge bid was cleared. During the negotiations with Landbridge in 2015, Andrew Robb was the Minister for Trade and Investment in the Liberal government. Dr. John Garrick is a senior lecturer in business law at Charles Darwin University, and he's written quite a lot about the leasing of the Port of Darwin. He spoke with us last year. Andrew Robb, a former federal government minister, almost immediately upon resigning from his position in Parliament, took up a consultancy with Landbridge, which was the successful tenderer on a multi-million dollar project to lease the port of Darwin for 99 years. The money has all been completely spent and there's still 96 years to run on the lease. I think it was only three months after um, Andrew Robb left to his position as a minister. Yeah, that sounds right. You know, it's interesting to see what people do when they leave. In a case like this, it's almost inconceivable that he would have gone straight from Parliament to an $880,000 a year consultancy to help the company steer its way through the system, unless they were very well acquainted. I mean, you you don't have to be Einstein here. So Andrew Robb has now left this lucrative position. He said that the Landbridge Group uh, didn't have anything for him to do. But he later came out swinging, saying that criticisms of him were quite misguided because he wasn't acting as an agent of foreign influence. He wasn't acting specifically in China's interest, that this was something that was beneficial to Australia as well. So that argument's been put. However, when you're living here in Darwin and you see the US Marines on one side of town, and you see the Darwin port leased to a Chinese company for the next 99 years on the other side of town, you have to scratch your head a little bit and say, what's really going on here? John Garrick, Senior Lecturer in Business Law at Charles Darwin University. The St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please donate today. Call 9231-3365 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Vincent's Foundation is a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Concerns about government ministers taking positions with multinational companies soon after leaving Parliament was in the news again in June last year when Christopher Pine, former Minister of Defence, took up a position with the international consulting firm EY to help grow their defence business. For Rex Patrick, Centre for South Australia with the Centre Alliance Party, Christopher Pine's move to EY just over a month after leaving Parliament raised questions about ministerial standards. He spoke to us in June last year. Well, Mr Pine, as you suggested, was the Defence Minister. He was also the leader of the government in the House and a member of Cabinet. He has knowledge of the broadest affairs of government and the intimate details of every significant matter in respect of the defence portfolio. He will have been briefed by defence. He will have been briefed by companies. Uh, He will have uh, been uh, briefed on plans that are not in the public domain. Now, I'm of the view that Mr Pine wouldn't pass on any sensitive information, but he can't unknow what he knows when he is forming up advice to give to EY. That will raise probity issues with other companies who will be rightfully concerned about the advantage EY now has. Australia's been buying big in the defence industry, and there are debates about that as well. This is a time when any firm is set to make quite a bit of money from Australia. There are plenty of opportunities for EY. However, the concern will be that they have someone on board their staff who is privy to information that otherwise they wouldn't have and indeed other competing companies wouldn't have. Is this like insider trading? In some sense, yes, it is. The problem here is one that's encountered in uh, in industry as well. Normally, if you're the CEO of a company or a very senior person inside a company, when you leave the company, they have a mandatory gardening leave period is, is what it's often called. The, the idea is you just go off and prune your garden whilst time passes so that the information that you have about that company becomes dated. That's the same problem we have here. And of course, it's dealt with by something called the Statement of Ministerial Standards, which is the PM's guidelines to ministers on their conduct, and it extends to ministers who have left the government. What's contained in those standards? What kinds of things that do former members of parliament or ministers have to be aware of? Ministers are required to undertake that for an 18-month period after ceasing to be a minister, they will not lobby, advocate or have business meetings with members of the government, parliament, public service or defence force on any matters on which they had official dealings as minister in their last 18 months in office. In that respect, former Minister Pine probably won't contact people. It's the next criteria which comes of concern where it says ministers are also required to undertake that on leaving office they will not take personal advantage of information to which they have had access as a minister where that information is not generally available to the public. Do people actually observe that 18 months guideline? This has happened before. There 
have been other ministers that have left, and indeed there's been advisors to ministers who also end up in similar situations. And this will continue to go on until a Prime Minister who sets those standards enforces the standards. This is now a test for the Prime Minister. It's a test of his conviction towards his own statement of ministerial standards. What's happened with Mr Pine is inappropriate and the Prime Minister must now act. The PM must call Mr Pine and if he gets nowhere he should direct Defence and other government agencies to cease using or awarding any contracts to EY until the 18-month time period specified in the ministerial standards has expired. How likely is Scott Morrison to do this? This comes down to his integrity and his strong leadership and we will find out whether he has that integrity and whether he is willing to be a strong leader on this. Do other countries have these same kind of ministerial requirements? I know for certain that the United States has a similar set of arrangements. It's typically designed to make sure that people have confidence in government. We can't have a situation where companies are going into a minister's office to brief the minister on their commercially sensitive bids on their intellectual property and then the minister uh, moves on to another company where they can take advantage of that. But I do understand there's no real legal power to enforce those ministerial standards. Well, that goes to another issue, and that is the fact that the Morrison government has not committed to an independent commission against corruption. You might recall that uh, Cathy McGowan, independent member for Indi, put a bill to the parliament which proposed an independent commission against corruption, and that bill, had it been passed, would have created a commission that would have had jurisdiction to deal with this matter. It was specifically stated in that bill that it had jurisdiction over breaches of the statement of ministerial standards. And what's happening to that bill? Well, that bill will expire when this parliament expires in a few days, and it will be a matter of whether or not that's reintroduced. The government is introducing its own bill in relation to uh, anti-corruption. That bill is extremely weak and quite disappointing. Rex Patrick, Senator for South Australia with the Centre Alliance Party, emphasising the need for a corruption watchdog in Australia and the inadequacy of the government's efforts. You're on 3CR 855 AM on your dial and streaming live, and you're hearing a bit of um, the sound of birds or even the odd chook in the background. It's because we're all broadcasting from home. I'm broadcasting from home fully caffeinated this morning. You're on 3CR. And that's the show for today. Um, We've just been listening to Judith Peppard talking about the revolving door. Uh, You can catch Judith Peppard all around the station. She's on Monday breakfast, but she also has been doing a series called Listening Notes, which is so worth a listen. So log on to 3CR and check that out if you haven't already. Apart from Judith, we've also talked to the Australian Council of Social Services who have been talking about the class action uh, against robo-debt and the government and the significance of it, the next steps of it. Again, I will reiterate, um, there's another great article by The Guardian which has shown that quite a lot of people coming out of this class action will not actually receive that much money in recompensation and there's still a long way to go to making sure that justice is found for those people. 
Uh, so that will be in our rundown. We've also had just a few conversations from around 3CR. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of been our, I suppose, our heavy news content. And then Rob, tram thoughts? Yeah, we had a tram thoughts about murals. So kind of discussing the rise of murals in 2020, but then, you know, what's, what's it like when you visit a mural, the kind of energy of it being a space where the art's being created, actually, and you're sitting in this, you're standing in the same space as the artist, which is kind of cool. Um, as well as some of the more political connotations and the sort of community connotations that come through with murals and really the importance that they have in a city, particularly that's becoming increasingly saturated with advertising and how murals play a really important part in reinstilling the sort of community values. Mm. And we were over, we were very positive about murals, but I think it would be interesting in the sake of ABC balance to also maybe have future discussions around um, this co-opting of murals that we're seeing where advertising is blending and mixing with murals and stuff like that. That might be, who knows, that might be a future conversation that we have. Uh, but for now, I guess we'll love you and leave you. Um, before we had Earth Matters, next up we have Stick Together. And I hope you guys have a lovely Wednesday. See you later.